This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 13, French Existentialism. I was in Transylvania last week, and the world is in a truly miserable state. And I was in Transylvania in Halloween season. And I can report I did not see a single vampire. And not only that, but it was actually beautiful, warm, and sunny in Transylvania, unseasonably warm. I'm hoping this is a good omen of something. Um, today we're going to talk about French existentialism, which I think you're going to like. Um, and in particular, we're going to talk about Sartre. And I'm going to start, um, perhaps slightly inappropriately, but I can't resist, with reading you a children's book by Sandra Boyton. And this book was given to my son, Caleb, in 2010, when he was about four weeks old, by a philosopher friend, actually by an analytical philosopher, not somebody who works on existentialism, but it's an extremely existentialist book. Um, so I'm going to read it to you to introduce you to Sartre's version of existentialism, and hopefully if you don't remember anything else about the lecture, you will at least remember the main point of this book. Okay, it's a book about a hippopotamus. It's called, But Not the Hippopotamus. I realize it's a little too far away for you to see the pictures, but we'll do the best we can. Um, a hog and a frog cavort in the bog, but not the hippopotamus. A cat and two rats are trying on hats, but not the hippopotamus. A moose and a goose together have juice, but not the hippopotamus. A bear and a hare have been to a fair, but not the hippopotamus. Now the hog and the frog hurry out for a jog with the cat and the rats in their new running hats, while the moose and the bear and the goose and the hare are doing their best to keep up with the rest, but not the hippopotamus. Then the animal pack comes scurrying back saying, hey, come join the lot of us. And she just doesn't know. Should she stay? Should she go? But yes, the hippopotamus, but not the armadillo. OK. What I want <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh. Thanks go to Sandra Boyton, who I don't know personally, but whose children's books my kids and I loved when they were babies. Um, the important thing I want you to remember, which we will get back to later in this lecture, if you don't remember anything else about French existentialism, the important point I want you to remember is that what is crucial is that the hippopotamus must decide for herself. In the end, she has to make the decision whether to stay or whether to go. Okay, we will, we're going to call that decisionism, and we will get back to that in about 20 minutes or so. Um, I'm gonna start with a little philosophical recapitulation of, of where we've been now, try to get you to Satra. So phenomenology was seeking a way to transcend subjective consciousness while simultaneously affirming its primacy, its privileged position as the locus of meaning and truth. And so intentionality 
that you know, string with the magnet attached became the means of transcendence, the transcendental condition of moving past the boundaries of consciousness per se to the object. Intentionality gets us beyond and outside of ourselves without abandoning ourselves. Intentionality is the bridge. Husserl believes he's discovered the bridge. Um, as a side note, Lenin, in some sense, tries to make the reverse move. He tries to make consciousness almost into a transcendent object that can then be brought back from outside to inside and, and given to the workers like a gift. So in Lenin, you get a kind of move from the transcendent to the imminent, from object to subject. Traditionally, in epistemology, we're trying to get from subject to object. That's the way the problem with the bridge is usually formulated. Now, Heidegger comes along, and this is the truly radical turn, and he reformulates the question. This is a trick all these philosophers do. It's not that they're all answering the same question, but they're reformulating it. They're emphasizing different things, and so the questions start to shift. Heidegger's going to reformulate the question so that the distance between subject and object ceases to be an issue. And how he reformulates it is he says that there is no, you know, Husserl says in the beginning is the relationship. Subject and object are always connected in such a way that they can't be disconnected. And Heidegger is going to say that there is no subject that can be disarticulated from the world because Dasein is immer schon in der Welt sein, is always already in the world. There's no outside. There's only inside. We are always already thrown inside. We are involved. We are up to something. We are engaged. We care about things. We are responding. And so Heidegger no longer needs intentionality, basically the same way that Husserl believes he no longer needs Kant's distinction between the ding on zik and the phenomenon, the thing as it appears to us. Um, now, I realize all that still takes a while to kind of percolate. Um, one source I can recommend, we're going to talk about Satra's Being in Nothingness today, which is a long, dense book. Um, in the introduction, he actually gives quite a good introduction, fairly clear to phenomenology. I mean, he's a much more clear writer than Heidegger. Being in Nothingness is still very hard to get through, unlike the... Um, the, the public version I gave to you this week, which you'll love, Existentialism and Humanism, which was given as a public lecture and is extremely easy to digest. That's his own Cliff Notes version of being a nothingness. Okay, so let me remind everyone now where we are historically. French Revolution, 1789. At that time, we had deism, this idea that, yes, we haven't killed off God, God is still there, but he doesn't like have his hands in everything. He's kind of off to the sides just watching. Um, the emasculation of God, we can call it. The end of the divine right of kings, the transformation of you know, subjects who are, in fact, possessions of the, of, of the monarch to citizens endowed with natural and political rights. Um, now, remember, we had that enlightenment romanticism tension between reason and thought on the one hand and passion and will on the other hand. And in Satra, we're going to see the Enlightenment legacy of God's diminished role, but we're also going to see the romantic legacy of sincerity, authenticity, action, will. 
Um, as we move through 1848, we get the moment of liberalism blending in with nationalism, um, which is then going to be a kind of enlightenment romantic synthesis, and we get the Communist Manifesto coming out that same year. Um, Hegelian teleology, progressive time, now time moving inexorably, inevitably to a certain def destination. 1880s, the death of God, um, World War I, 1914, the total shattering of a European order. Um, in the midst of that war, as four great empires are crumbling, you have the Bolshevik Revolution. Although what it was at the time, nobody yet knew. I mean, it seemed like a great conflagration, a fire, something is going up in flames where everything was going to land was completely unclear. Um, what you have in World War I is a violence against civilians on what was previously an unimagined scale. Looking back, we don't appreciate that because it's gotten so much worse. But at the time, it was unimaginable. It used to be that wars were things done between professional armies on battlefields. And World War I was a total war. The map of Europe was redrawn. The national principle triumphed. The idea was that the boundaries of nations and states could coincide. One of many things in life which works only in theory and not in practice. Um, there were all of these new countries were set up at the drawing table as liberal democracies guaranteeing rights to the minority in almost every place with the partial exception of Czechoslovakia that lasted about five minutes. Um, through the interwar years, through the years between 1918 and 1939 in Europe, the very short version of a very complicated political story is one of radical polarization. So these new European states are set up as liberal democracies, you know, supposedly with a, a center. The center doesn't hold. And the center doesn't hold, the center holds for about 30 seconds. I mean, it really doesn't hold. It's not that like it totters a little bit. Um, and what you have in the, in the course of these 20 years, again, this is the 30 second version and it could be a whole course or should be a whole course, is a radically polarizing political spectrum. The left is becoming more radical, the right is becoming more radical, and the center is disappearing. Um, Lenin dies in 24. Stalin has consolidated power by, say, 1928, 1929. Um, Hitler and the Nazis come to power in Germany in 1933. This is a new kind of politics. This is not a kind of politics that had existed a century earlier. It's a politics that is sometimes called post-liberal, um, in the sense of a politics of the masses and the mob, and like the war that becomes a total war, a politics that aims to take over all aspects of life. No, politics no longer as something done by, you know, a handful of elite men over brandy and cigars in a closed room, but politics as, as charismatic movement, you know, with its own with its own newspapers and its own entertainment and its own youth clubs and its own songs and its own aspiration to take over all aspects of society. This aspiration to total control over all aspects of life together with the fact that the center doesn't hold and there's a radical polarization, this is the context 
for Sartre's obsession with choice, with this idea of making a choice, which is at the center of his version of existentialism. The stakes get very high, and the alternatives become very dramatic, and there seems to be nothing moderate in the middle. And no space to stand aside. Everybody is involved. So from now on, as we move through the rest of the course, Nazism and Stalinism are going to linger in the background of everyone who is thinking everything. You know, and, you know, Nazism comes to power in Germany in early 1933. It falls with the defeat of Nazi Germany in 1945. It's 12 years, but a long 12 years. Stalinism lasts a lot longer. Um, I would date it from perhaps 1928 with the first five-year plan. Some people would say 1929. In any case, it's going to last at least until 1953 when Stalin dies, and arguably 1956 um, where there's, uh, when Khrushchev gives a so-called secret speech exposing some of the crimes of Stalinism. So however you date it, it lasts a lot longer. I would say, let's say conservatively, 1928, at least to 53 and arguably to 56. Um, throughout Europe, and especially among intellectuals, the experience of both the interwar years and then the Second World War is going to radicalize the left. The sense that the world is divided into Nazis and communists and there is nothing in between. You're either a fascist or you're a communist. There doesn't seem to be a space to occupy in between because liberalism didn't hold. Um, everything that follows, all of the thinking intellectuals do from now on, will be in some way a response to these totalitarian experiences of the mid-20th century, to this terror and hell. And the numbers were just previously inconceivable. Millions and millions of people tortured. In the lands between Poland and Russia alone, um, the lands my husband Tim Snyder calls the bloodlands, there were at least 14 million non-combatants killed um, during these years between 1933 and 1953, in Nazi concentration camps, in the gas chambers, in Stalinist prison cells, in the gulag, in famines that lead to cannibalism. And the terrifying implications of, of the death of God, the realization of all Nietzsche's possible dark prophecies, the collapse of civilization, this is the context for the necessity of choice and the moral imperative of choice. So I realize I started off very lightly with, you know, choice being the hippopotamus has to decide whether or not to join the other animals for a jog. Um, and now we're like, now I have you back in the gulag and the gas chambers. Um, and I realize the hippopotamus doesn't quite take the edge off the gulag and the gas chambers, but I, I do what I can. <laughs> so let me, um, let me take you through Satra. Um, he's an extremely prolific writer. He writes in a wide variety of genres. And for both him and Simone de Beauvoir, there's a kind of moral imperative to writing. This kind of writing as a calling. You know, the, the moral imperative to write. 
And that, that makes them into slightly, you know, graphomaniacs, so it's kind of uneven. If you're writing constantly, all the time, every day, it's not all going to be equally good. Um, he's a playwright, he's a novelist, he's a philosopher, he's a memoirist. Um, he goes through many stages, he changes his views. He was awarded the Nobel Prize, but he doesn't want to receive it because it's bourgeois and therefore corrupt. Um, but writing is a calling. He's also someone who had a lot of insecurities, like, like lots of intellectuals. Um, the historian Tony Jett called him the quintessential example of intellectuals as the only social class that loves to hate itself, a self-abnegating class. He had this famous sense of worthlessness. Um, he has, and we will, we will talk about this in, in a subsequent lecture, he has a lifelong relationship with an extraordinary philosopher named Simone de Beauvoir. He meets her in 1929 when she's 21, three years younger than he is. They're studying together for an exam. This may make you be more interested in finding study partners or, or not. <laughs> um, um, it's the most important and competitive postgraduate exam in France, the Adrogation in philosophy. You know, and I don't, I'm not a French studies person. I've never studied in France, but the, the cult of this particular exam in France seems to be its own thing. Like people who sit for it, it's, it has its a kind of fetishistic, all-encompassing meaning. Anyway, they're both taking this exam in philosophy. Um, Simone de Beauvoir feels like someone has actually surpassed her for the first time in her life in intensity. Um, he gets the highest grade in the exam, and she gets the second highest grade, but she's taking the exam for the first time, and he's taking it for the second time, so you can make what you will of that. Um, in any case, there are lot, lots has been written about this legendary beginning that they meet studying for the Agration. Um, subsequently, they're going to hang out in a place called Café de Flore um, in Paris on the Boulevard Saint-Germain, which is still there. If you're in Paris, you could go and drink coffee and wear black turtlenecks and commune with, uh, <laughs> commune with Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. Um, he proposed fairly early. She declined. Um, both of them were committed to an open relationship. Um, there were multiple other lovers, sometimes threesomes. There was a whole life of lots of cocktails and jazz clubs. Um, there's great literature written about this. Again, if you want to commune with Paris, jazz clubs, Café de Flore. Um, but what is interesting for our purposes, too, is it's another example of encounter. Um, that these were two of the great minds of the 20th century, and they will do all their thinking and writing throughout their adult lives in dialogue with each other. Uh, he, Sartre was born in 1905, so he's a student in the 1920s. Um, in the interwar years, he studies philosophy in both Paris and Germany, and he's interested in phenomenology. He's captivated by phenomenology, but immediately has serious critiques of it. Um, in his, his early work, Transcendence of the Ego, in uh, 1937, he critiques the phenomenological reduction from essentially a Heideggerian standpoint, that there can be no such reduction, no such suspension of our belief in the world, because we are always already in the world. So what does it mean to kind of put in brackets our belief that the world is real? Um, so 
September 1st, 1939, Nazi, well, actually, let me, let me back up and just give you a couple, two quick couple references, which I've probably mentioned before. Hitler comes to power in 1933, the Munich Conference, September 1938, he demands to ab um, absorb the Sudetenland, which is this western strip of Czechoslovakia that is inhabited largely by ethnic Germans. Neville Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister, decides to give it to him, although it's not his to give, but that's another, that's another thing. Um, that is the so-called appeasement at Munich. In English, we say appeasement at Munich. In Czech, they say the betrayal at Munich. It's the moment when liberal bourgeois democracy sells out to Nazi Germany. Chamberlain famously goes back to London and says, I bring you peace in our time. Famous last words. Um, then March 1939, Hitler breaks his promise and he occupies the Czech lands and turns Slovakia into a Catholic fascist state under Nazi tutelage. In August uh, 1939, he makes a pact, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, um, with the Stalinist Soviet Union. In, it's a non-aggression treaty in which they agree to divide up Poland and erase it from the map. So September 1st, 1939, Nazi Germany attacks Poland from the west, and three weeks later, the Soviet Union comes in the east. And that is the beginning, that is you know, the end of that version of Poland, and it is the beginning, formally speaking, um, of the Second World War. And then that spring, Nazi Germany is going to attack France, and France is going to fall very quickly. Satra then is serving as an army meteorologist. Interestingly, Heidegger, when he was serving late in the First World War for Germany, was also working in meteorology. So there seems to be some connection between philosophers and weather. I'm not sure exactly what it is. I just thought I'd point that as a footnote. Um, he's captured by the Nazis. He's a prisoner of war between uh, 1940 and 1941. And as one does as a prisoner of war, he uses his time as a prisoner to study being in time. Um, in, in general, it's kind of extraordinary how much of intellectual life takes place when thinkers find themselves in prison. Um, this is not pleasant, but it's it comes up again and again. Um, he spends his time as a prisoner of war, um, reading Being in Time, um, and thinking through what is going to become Being in Nothingness. Um, after his release, he participates very actively in the French resistance um, to the German occupation until the liberation. In 1943, in the midst of this all, while he is participating in the liberation, in the, in the resistance, um, he finishes being a nothingness. Um, he's deeply affected by the Bolshevik Revolution, the Second World War, the collaborationist French government of Vichy France, um, the French resistance and its relative weakness. He's very affected by the Holocaust, and later on he will be very affected by the, the French-Algerian War, the Algerian War of Independence. Um, in the second half of the 1950s and beginning of the 1960s. Um, he's deeply concerned with the world, with oppression, with exploitation. Um, after the war, he and Simone de Beauvoir, together with um, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, Raymond Aron, and others, they create a journal called Le Temps Moderne, and in the first issue of October 1945, Satra argues for the necessity of engagé literature. 
And that is, what he means is that thinkers, writers, philosophers should be involved in the world. They should not be retreating to their you know, little huts in the forest in Totenelberg and pretending not to have anything to do with the world. They should not be retreating into the ivory tower of universities. They should be out there taking positions, getting involved. Um, if you want to commune with this immediate post-war period and the moral dilemmas of engagement, Simone de Beauvoir has a long, slightly overwritten but quite interesting novel called The Mandarins, um, which is a Roman a clef. It's autobiographical, and it goes through this period in this journal. Okay, so for the rest of today, I'm just going to talk to you about French existentialism as Sartre formulated it for the most part in the mid-1940s. And let me start by saying that being in nothingness, well, remember last time I ended by trying to get you to think about whether Heidegger's idea of replacing what earlier philosophers had called the subject with Dasein being there and being always already in the world, was this a radicalization of the subject or was this a dissolution of the subject? And you could read it both ways was a subject that can no longer be disarticulated and separated from an object still a subject? Um, I'm going to bracket that question, and I'm going to tell you as an introduction to Sartre's version of existentialism that Sartre takes the radically subjectivist version of, of being in time. You know, Dasein is all the more of a subject for him. Um, now I'm going to take you through this. The, the ver I'm going to take you through using an essay he publishes in 1946, which he gives as a lecture, very famously in October 1945, which said existentialism is a humanism, in which he defends existentialism against charges of pessimism, um, and takes Nietzsche's announcement of the death of God with deadly seriousness, and the resulting meaninglessness the absurdity of our life in, in a world from which God is absent. By the way, there, there's, a, there's an argument here that, again, I'm going to bracket, but some of you may be interested in exploring it later, that Sartre's reading of Being in Time was dependent on an early translation of Dasein into what in French is literally human reality, which is arguably a mistranslation um, but that mistranslation became its own thing, and so then there's a French tradition that goes off via Sartre of a, of a kind of radically subjectivist, almost Cartesian reading of being in time. Okay, Sartre is going to follow Heidegger in, ex in distinguishing to be from to exist. For Heidegger, only Dasein has the possibility of existence. You know, the, the bumblebee can be in the world, a plant can be, the cow can be, but Dasein not only is, but also exists in the sense that Dasein must create itself, must make choices for itself. Um, that Dasein is not an essence, but possibility whose essence lies in its existence. Um, animals have no conscious existence in this sense of making existential choices. Now, my son Caleb would argue about this vehemently. 
Um, he's preoccupied with the fact that animals could be much more sentient than we give them credit for, especially certain animals. He's particularly interested in wild pigs and bison. But we're going to leave that aside because Sartre is kind of following Heidegger in the assumption that human beings are special. We're special, we are self-reflective about the condition of our lives, we are self-creating beings. Um, he's following Husserl in establishing the centrality of the human subject as the source of all meaning, and he is following both Nietzsche's sense of the death of God which cannot be undone, and Dostoevsky's provocation that if God is dead, then everything is permitted. If we have lost God, Sartre says, um, then it is we ourselves who are the creators of values. And he's insistent on the fact that we cannot lie around feeling sorry for ourselves and mourning God's loss. We must take the consequences of God's death as radically as possible if any compensation is to be made for the loss. We have to see that we are here thrown into the world and abandoned by the absence of God, and therefore we ourselves are the creators of values. So remember, Heidegger emphasizes our thrownness. We're always already into the world. We are thrown. That word geworfenheit. Once you start using the word geworfenheit, you'll be amazed you ever could have like, lived without that word. This is such a useful word. Geworfenheit, our condition of thrownness. Now, is going to take that thrownness and he's going to emphasize less the condition of being thrown and more the sense that we're thrown and abandoned. So this idea of abandonment is very strong. We are thrown into the world and abandoned here. We're abandoned by the God who does not exist. Um, um, and this is our, so this loss, this dislocation, again, we're back to the homelessness the homelessness and alienation that is the trauma of modernity, um, we are thrown into the world and abandoned. I'll, I'll read you two Sartre quotes here so you get a sense of his language. And when we speak of abandonment, a favorite word of Heidegger, we only mean to say that God does not exist and that it is necessary to draw the consequences of his absence right to the end. The existentialist, Sartre says, is strongly opposed to a certain type of secular moralism which seeks to suppress God at the least possible expense. The existentialist, Sartre says, finds it extremely embarrassing that God does not exist, for there disappears with him all possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven. Dostoevsky once wrote, if God did not exist, everything would be permitted. And that, for existentialism, is the starting point. Everything is indeed permitted if God does not exist, and man is in consequence forlorn, for he cannot find anything to depend upon, either within or without himself. Now, God had fulfilled many functions. One of those functions was to guarantee that there was such a thing as human nature. There was some essence of what it was to be human that was pre-given, to ensure that essence is prior to existence. Sartre's gonna turn that around, and one of the key points or slogans of his existentialism is going to be, existence precedes essence. 
And that basically means that there is no a priori given human nature. First we are thrown into the world and then we create ourselves. We create our own essence. We work it out by existing. Existence comes first. There's nothing pre-given. If God does not exist, Sartre writes, there is at least one being whose existence comes before its essence, a being which exists before it can be defined by any conception of it. So there's only, we are only possibility until we make choices and create ourselves. So coming back to this idea of choices, to this decisionism. You know, we are thrown into the world to define ourselves. We begin as pure possibility, as nothingness. Now, Sartre's going to follow Heidegger in using nothingness as if it were a thing. They're both very into nothingness. You know, Heidegger talks about das Nächste, and, and Sartre's going to spend a lot of time talking about nothingness. And you kind of get into this paradox that the nothingness starts to seem like a something. In fact, in, the, in some sense, the most important something is nothingness. Um, they're going to use it in somewhat different ways. For Heidegger, I think what's most essential about that nothingness, at least in being in time, is that our, we are proceeding inevitably, inexorably towards our own death. That's our being towards death. Dasein is always already being in the world and it is always already being towards death. You know, and what death is, is the possibility of our non-possibility, is this nothingness. It's not about heaven, it's not about hell, it's just nothingness. Um, and that nothingness is what ungrounds us because there's, there's, no, there's nothing to ground us because we're proceeding towards nothingness. For Sartre's going to emphasize more nothing, radical nothingness is radical freedom. It's much closer to the nihilism of the avant-garde of the 1910s. That sense of everything is possible and therefore everything is ungrounded. So radical nothingness is radical freedom. It's the space for creation. Um, man is nothing, he writes, but what he makes of himself. So we're going now to put determinism aside entirely. We're going to find ourselves in a world of radical contingency and almost total freedom. And the almost comes because there is such a thing that Sartre will acknowledge as the facticity of a situation, um, which I will, um, I will get back to in a moment. Dasein, the kind of beings we are, combine, and this is where the nothingness is going to come in, we're going to combine two things. You're going to see hearkening to Bergson here too. We are both ansoi, which is in itself, which is going to sound like Hegel, this very annoying kind of philosophical jargon, but everyone's going to use it their own way. The in itself, the ansoi, my French pronunciation is so terrible that I may have to write this even. This is all on your handout, so. This is the for itself. This is the in itself. So human beings are both en soi and pour soi. We are both in itself and for itself. And what in itself is, is what is already established it is inert, it cannot be undone. It is essentially what has happened, who we have been until this moment that cannot be changed. It is very close to what he will call the facticity of the situation. 
You can't undo what's been done. You also can't imagine that like, maybe instead of either jumping off this stage or walking down the steps, I might suddenly grow wings and fly. You know, that's outside the facticity of the situation. It's outside the facticity of being a human being. You know, so there's en soi, which is the in itself, the inert, the solid, the facticity, the given of the situation. It's quite close to thrownness in some ways. It cannot be changed. The poor soi, as you might guess, is the opposite. It is the fluid, the dynamic, the internal negation. This is the Hegelian part. The internal negation, the nihilation of the in itself. It is possibility. It is transcendence. It is the possibility to go beyond who you have been and what has been until now moving into the future. So it doesn't mean you can undo the past, but it means you, make, you can do something more, something different going into the future. So as conscious individuals, as individuals who not only are but also exist, we surpass, we transcend the facticity of our given situation. We are always more than our situation because we're also the possibilities of the future, taking advantage of the nothingness that is not yet determined. We are both en soi and pour soi. And en soi is related to pour soi as facticity is to transcendence as past is to future. So the present is always a kind of border, a border between what has been and who we have been up to now that cannot be changed, and the nothingness in front of us, which is the possibility, the space to create, to do something more, to do something different, to create ourselves anew. Huh. Okay. So, so the present is always this mixture of facticity and impossibility. And we are free because we are not only in itself, but also for itself. You know, consciousness is for itself, which is a no thing in the sense of not a thing, but an activity he describes as a wind blowing from nowhere from the world. Um, it must forever choose itself. He likes to say in being in nothingness, I am my own nothingness. And this is not supposed to be depressing, this is supposed to be freeing, because the nothingness is what has not yet been determined, and that is our space. Okay. Um, as, as human beings, we're going to kind of live in this dialectical tension, constantly, between the in itself and the for itself. You see Hegel's influence here. You see Heidegger's influence here. You see some of Bergson's influence here, with intellect and intuition. Um, okay. As human beings, we're always kind of living in this dialectical tension. Okay, so what then do we do? The famous Stodielak question. Um, the existentialist is a, is a man with free will. Now, Satrian freedom, like Heideggerian freedom, recognizes that even given free will, we are always already in a given situation. So I can choose to walk or run or jump or skip but I can't choose to fly. I don't have wings. We have freedom within the limits of the situation. Nevertheless, there are, also there are always possibilities, and in any given situation, we must choose. Not choosing is also a choice. The important thing, the moral imperative for Sartre, and this is where his version of existentialism is going to become very controversial, the moral imperative is not what we choose, but that we choose. 
There's no moral code that tells us what to choose in a given situation. The imperative is that we take responsibility for making the choice. Man is nothing but what he makes of himself. We are nothing until we self-create. There is no reality except in action. We are only what we do, how we create ourselves. An existential imperative to make a choice, to act. Um, man is always the subject and not the object. Now this goes together with something Sartre will call mauvaise foi, or bad faith. Put this on the board, it's also on your handout. Um, and this is a very important concept, bad faith. There's a very complex explanation of it in being in nothingness. I'm gonna give you the very simple version now. Bad faith is not, as Sartre uses it, is not the way we colloquially use it in English as you know, somebody who is acting with opportunistic intentions or with motives other than those he admits. And let, it's, not, it's not like bad faith actors in politics. What bad faith really means for Satra is self-deception. Bad faith is a lie we tell to ourselves in which we are both the teller and the recipient of the lie. Um, it generally takes the form of taking refuge behind the excuse of some deterministic doctrine that enables us to evade responsibility for making our own choices. It essentially most often, first of all and most of the time, takes the form of dissimulating regarding one's agency and responsibility. That is a denial of one's freedom and a regarding of oneself falsely as an object of saying I couldn't have done otherwise or it was fate or handing the decision over in some way, outsourcing it or shoving it off onto or blaming somewhere else or a failure to take responsibility. To say that's the way I am or it had to be this way by virtue of the laws of nature, that is to act in bad faith. It's to fail to take responsibility. It, it, it's a little bit analogous to, to Heidegger's Das Mann Selbst, to Heidegger's They Sell. It's not exactly the same, but you'll see a relationship. Um, now, it, it can also take a secondary form, which is a failure to recognize the facticity of the situation and thereby making a decision that's not really a decision. Um, that, that, faith, that version doesn't come up quite as often, um, but the idea that you can achieve anything just by wishing it and live in a kind of fantasy world. And, and the example I'll give you is that when my kids were toddlers, they, they like to change into animals. You notice a big animal theme with my kids. Um, and especially when they were small, like they would decide to be different animals, different times. Sometimes an animal would just last for a day, they'd be cats for a day, and then pigs or cows or whatever. And sometimes you would have it kind of going on for weeks. So one December, while we were driving all the way through Pennsylvania, which is a long, miserable drive, um, to my parents-in-law's house in rural Ohio, a long, boring drive on the highway, um, they were at a stage where they decided they were bumblebees. That's just what, I don't know why, where, like, they decided they were bumblebees. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the highway, they started demanding that we immediately let them out of the car because bumblebees don't ride in cars. Bumblebees fly, and they want to fly to grandma and grandpa's house. Now, Satra would say this is an example of bad faith. <laughs> yeah. 
because you can choose to take the bus or you can choose to take the plane or you can choose to drive, but you can't actually say, I'm going to magically fly. Um, needless to say, we did not let them out of the car to fly to grandma and grandpa's house. Okay. But what bad faith is in both its dominant form, which is pretending you don't have a choice, you know, or thinking you have a choice that you don't really have because it's negated by the facticity of the situation, is a lie you tell to yourself, in which you are both the teller and the recipient. Um, there, by the way, is also a critique here that Sartre makes of Freud, where he says Freud's idea of consciousness is being divided into the unconscious you know, and the conscious, you know, is not right because it implies that you can cleanly somehow divide consciousness into two parts, one which is opaque and one which is transparent. And Satra says, really, all of consciousness is translucent. So neither opaque nor transparent. It's like you're kind of synthesizing the consciousness and the unconsciousness. And it's that translucence of consciousness that enables, he says, bad faith, that enables you to tell the lie to yourself. Okay, so the implications of, of existentialism here. The implications are, are anguish, angst, despair because of the unbearable burden of, of, our, of our responsibility. And here I'll read you another quote. The existentialist frankly states that man is in anguish. Now again, his anguish is going to be a little bit different from Heidegger's angst. It's going to be less connected with finitude and mortality and more connected with responsibility. The existentialist frankly states that man is in anguish. His meaning is as follows. When man commits himself to anything, fully realizing that he is not only choosing what he will be, but is thereby at the same time a legislator for the whole of mankind, in such a moment man cannot escape the sense of complete and profound responsibility. So this absolute freedom is absolute responsibility. All of this nothingness is a space for choosing, which is an unbearable burden of responsibility. There's no reality except in action. Um, and the, the Polish writer um, Gombrowicz, uh, Gombrowicz critiques him for this and says, you know, Satra and his theoretical disdain for pain states for a man who chooses pain as good, torture can become a celestial pleasure. This assertion seems very doubtful to me and characteristic of the French bourgeoisie, which unfortunately was spared for a long time from great pain. Existential man for Satra, Kambrovich continues, is condemned to freedom and he can choose himself. What happens if we choose, for example, frivolity and not authenticity, falseness and not truth? As there's no hell, there's no punishment. From the existential point of view, the only punishment is that man has no true existence. Okay, um, one of the things that you'll see in this essay is that there are situations in which choice is illuminated and it's, there are no innocent choices. And he will talk about in this essay the young man during the war who has to decide whether to abandon his sick mother and join the resistance. Um, history is filled with these moments um, in which there are no innocent choices. There's a, there was a, a wonderful, wonderful Polish literary theorist who just last week um, died well, well into old age, who was a 
a child, a Jewish child, in hiding during the Second World War. Um, first in the Warsaw Ghetto um, and later on the so-called Aryan side. And he wrote a beautiful memoir about this called Black Seasons, which years ago I translated into English, if you're interested. Um, and there's one scene that he recalls from his childhood, he's six, seven, eight at the time, where he and his parents are hiding in the Warsaw Ghetto at the time when the Nazis come to deport the Jews on these trains to Treblinka. You know, and various people from the ghetto are trying to escape the deportations and they're hiding in a basement. They're hiding in a cellar in the ghetto trying to be very quiet so that the Nazis don't find them. And one of the women has a baby, and the baby starts crying and screaming, and the baby won't quiet down. And then the question comes up, do you suffocate the baby? And the people in the cellar have to decide whether or not to suffocate the baby. And the question is, if the baby keeps screaming, everybody will be caught and everybody will be killed. But you can't know that for certain. So should you suffocate the baby? This was the context in which Satra was writing. These moments in which there were no possible innocent choices. But nevertheless, one had to choose. And there was no escaping from that choice. There was no escaping from that choice, even though all possible versions would cause suffering to someone or something. Okay. Um, so the, the tragedy of choice. Um, let me try to, I only have one minute left, so let me, I will, I will spare you more miserable examples of tragic choices. But in order to really understand Satra's emphasis on decisionism, and I realize I began with the hippopotamus, that seems like a very frivolous choice, but it's such a dark world, I wanted to begin with something a little more cheerful. But Satra is coming up with this in the course of Nazi occupation, in which you're facing these kind of impossible choices every single day. You know, do you try to save someone by risking somebody else? How do you possibly make those choices? Um, okay. Um, Satra is later going to use his radical freedom to opt for Marxist determinism. And he will, in any case, spend the post-war years in various ways as a Stalinist apologist. Um, failing to or declining to speak out against the Stalinist show trials in Eastern Europe, even as some of his colleagues are murdered in those trials. Um, Tony Judd calls this the great absence, the absence of speech about the crimes of Stalinism. And, and Tony writes about that. But that was Satra's private tragedy, anti-anti-communism and everything it entailed, was the tragedy and dilemma of a generation. Tony Jett here is so harsh on Satra precisely because Satra was so uniquely important. He was perceived after the war for really decades as the conscience of his nation in particular and perhaps of Europe in general. When he died in 1980, the headline of a Parisian newspaper said France has lost its conscience. Satra spends a lot of time obsessing about the despairing consequences of the death of God. 
he is going to die in 1980 as in the role of the closest thing that post-war Europe has to God. I will uh, leave you with that, and uh, have a great spring break. I'll see you next week. Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.